from the Salvation Army National Headquarters, this is the Fight for Good Podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another Fight for Good podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Foley, currently the National Secretary for Program and Editor-in-Chief here at National Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. We want to thank you for listening in. Um, This is a very special episode as we uh, are going to focus on uh, author Amy Hollingsworth, and here is with me uh, is my edit our my or our editorial director Jeff McDonald. Jeff, greetings. Good to see and uh, hear you again. Good. Um, it's good to be with you. This uh, podcast today, we're going to share your interview, Jeff, that that you had with Amy Hollingsworth. And for our listeners, Amy is the the author of the book The Simple Faith Faith of Mister Rogers: Spiritual Insights. From the world's most beloved neighbor. Now, Jeff, we've done a couple of special features on this upcoming uh, movie. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's going to be released Thanksgiving week, I believe. And you you were able to sit down and talk with with Amy a little bit. Uh, why don't you give our listeners a little your interview with with Amy? Amy, uh, this book that uh, on spiritual insights, she published it in 2005, eight years before Fred Rogers passed away. She she uh, had scheduled an interview with him, um, and from that interview, they became really close friends. And Fred Rogers really consulted with her on raising her own children, and she got to know him, and he got to know her very well. Um, and one thing, so with this movie coming out, we can see through her book some of the motivation that Fred Rogers had in what he, the, the tremendous impact he had with children. Um, and when we discuss, talk with Amy, you really get a sense of uh, that Fred Rogers was very intentional in, in what he did. It just wasn't him being natural and in, in, behind the, you know, in front of the camera and what he did with children. He was really disciplined in his approach to life and intentional in what he wanted to convey to children. And I think Amy um, makes that clear in revealing the spiritual disciplines that uh, Fred Rogers followed day to day, but also the important message that he has for today. Amy says in her interview how today she thinks if Fred Rogers were here, he'd be on his soapbox really using a megaphone to convey to people how we are to treat children and um, treat one another. It's especially relevant in light of the um, mass shootings that we've seen over the decade and uh, the violence in inner cities and just in general, the uh, need for young people to um, be treated with empathy and understanding. And also, he'd probably speak out to the kind of the lack of civility that people are showing to one another and the disparaging comments and harsh words and rhetoric that are kind of just, you know, bantered around that really do have an effect on all 
all individuals, in particular our children. Right. Right. So we would uh, we would encourage you, and so uh, we thank you for giving us a few minutes here. And so we want you to give close attention to Jeff's interview with Amy Hollingsworth. Your book, you know, was uh, a joy to read, and it's Thank interesting you. after reading it. You know, it's entitled "Simple Faith." Um, of the best uh, beloved neighbor, but uh, when you think about it in retrospect, it's not really all that simple. <laughs> no, simple in execution, but not simple, but not simplistic. Yes, um, it it wasn't. It, it, you're right. That's absolutely true. Yeah, but uh, what concerns do you think he would be addressing today? Goodness. Um, <laughs> You know, I think he pro a lot. I think I I think he probably would be beating the same drums that he was beating during his lifetime, maybe louder. Um, one of the things that he came back again and again to me was about this very thing that we were just talking about in relationship with my son and and how you were raised and Fred and his family were raised and how I was raised and and so this this idea that. Um, that everything that is mentionable is manageable. That was something he said over and over again. In fact, he, he said that when he testified before the Senate subcommittee in 1969, that everything that is mentionable and is manageable. And so he wanted to give people permission to express their feelings. And he didn't put a value judgment on it. Feelings weren't good or bad, but they could be overwhelming, and especially to a child. And so he wanted to give people ways to express their feelings, especially anger, in ways that did not hurt them or anyone else. And sometimes I would be talking to him about one subject and he would just switch gears. He felt so passionately about the fact that children from the earliest time need to be given ways to express how they feel that don't hurt them or anyone else. And boy, you, all you have to do is watch the nightly news in America to see that we still need that kind of advocacy. We need, we still need somebody who acknowledges that we all have powerful emotions, but there are healthy ways to express them. How did he develop such a deep understanding of that from his own experience? Well, I think it was because not not being able to express that. You know, in, in The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, I tell a story of him when he was eight years old and he was being bullied. And when he came home from that experience, he said the adults around him, and I'm assuming he met his parents, said, you know, just act on, act like you don't care. Act like it doesn't bother you and they'll leave you alone. And he said even as an eight-year-old, he knew that wasn't right. You know, he knew that wasn't right, and he said, I I resented the teasing. I resented the pain. I resented those boys who bullied me for not seeing past my shyness and my fatness. And he said, I used to cry through my fingers as I made up songs on the piano. And and I think, you know, I think if there's any moment in his childhood where Mr. Rogers was born, it was probably that one because he realized he had these strong painful feelings and even feelings of resentment and yet he had no outlet for him he would cry through his fingers as he made up songs on the piano and so he wanted 
people to know that there are ways to express how they feel. And again, I'll use his words in ways that don't hurt them or anyone else. You know, I, I'm just amazed at that level of uh, self-understanding at an early age that he had. Yes, you know? I, it, it really is. It yeah. really is. He, I mean, I think all children are sensitive, but he was especially sensitive. And and even the child development specialist that he worked with on every program said, you know, he never shed the vestiges of childhood. And he felt like if we can remember how we felt in our childhood, it would make us much more empathic with our own children. Yeah, that's such a need today. Empathy, kindness, etc. Yes. You know, that we we so need that. Um We need him now more than ever. He we really do. It seems it and I don't know why we're losing that message so strongly. And I, I refer to my questions to the mass shootings and expressions mm-hmm. of rage among young people. Is it because they're just not you know, you you think about, well, are they being parented incorrectly? Are they being ignored? Are they being, you know, what is going on with that deep-seated anger that's just exploding? You know, it, it's it's interesting because after the Parkland shooting, I, I was so distressed, you know, as everyone was. Mm-hmm. And I, it was another one of those times where I just wanted to call him up on the phone and say, yeah. help, what do we, you know, what do we do? And I, I he wasn't there to do that, so I... I just went through my interviews with him. I watched the raw footage of my interviews with him and heard him say those things that I just said a few minutes ago about how important it was for children at the earliest age. You know, and he said, you know, this anger goes back for generations, you know, and it and it, it results in concentration camps and wars and everything. And he just felt so strongly that that children needed to know they could express those feelings, but they could do so in, in healthy ways. And, and, after I after I so I, I I had that experience. I went through my footage. I wrote an article about that after the Parkland shooting, and I had a prison ministry contact me and say, "Can we reprint this article in our prison newsletter? We think our we think the inmates need to hear this message." And I thought it was so powerful because in this case, you're talking about perpetrators of violence. Mm-hmm not just the victims or the protesters. And so that article where I shared Fred's longing, desire, passion to have people express anger in nonviolent ways and healthy ways went out to thousands of prisoners. Well, you know, one one thing that really stood out to me in the book was um, his understanding of the importance of sublimation. Yes. And, um, yeah, how critical that is. And even delayed gratification, which uh, plays into that. Um, I think so, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my he developed that on his own at an early age. But uh, who was his um, I forget who his mentor was in child psychology, who he looked up to. Do you remember? It was Margaret McFarland. In fact, right. she worked on every program with him for about 25 years until she died. Mm-hmm. You know, even the song that he, the song, he recited the words to the song, um, What Do You Do With the Mad That You Feel, when he was before the Senate subcommittee. Right. And, of course, that's gone viral. But it, it was an actual child had asked him that. 
an actual child had said, Mr. Rogers, what do I do with the mad that I feel? And so he oh. wrote this song. And in the song, he gives examples. You know, you can pound some clay. You can gather your friends up for a game of tag to see how fast you can go. And and I asked him one time on behalf of a child, you know, what do you do when you get mad? And he said he plays the piano. He plays the piano real hard when he gets mad or he yes. swims real hard. And so it's that whole idea that you can feel angry it's not a you know it's not a bad thing to feel angry but then there are ways to do it and for him it was playing the piano or swimming really fast and he said he felt like the the neighborhood offered people a variety of ways to deal with that and he said he's heard from adults who said you know i i started to do something that was wrong or i started to act out my anger and i thought of that song cuz in the song he says you know i can stop you know, I can stop, stop, stop any time, you know, and people, grown-ups, adults are, are re- reciting the, the lyrics to this child song to stop their bad behavior, which is remarkable. Makes me think that um, parenting is uh, so easy. It's easy to become a parent, but it's not easy to know how to be a parent, you know? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. And no, lesson, and you can think lesson. things in theory that you know don't work out in practice as well. Right. So really, that message is important for parents that he's telling. Right. That parents know how to interact with their children at an early age, and you know nurture that child within. Even for us. Absolutely. Adults. Yeah. And he and he really did believe that if people could remember their own childhood, then they could they could be much kinder to their children when they were going through things. And think about how it was for me. I had a a three-year-old and a one-year-old when I met him. (laughs) So, you know, there were plenty of phone calls back and forth about parenting issues, you know, know. confessions of sin and things like that. Oh, yeah. I know the feeling. (laughs) I remember losing my temper so easily and thinking, wow, what happened to you that you (laughs) you know, blow a gasket so easily? Wow. But, um, yeah, it's amazing, too. You think about children, those first, what, first year of life are so critical, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, uh, you know, another thing that impresses me about him is how he managed to be so focused on individuals in the moment. How did he manage that? As busy, you know, as, as he was very busy, he was very disciplined. Well, that's such a, that's such a thoughtful question. Um, and I think the answer is that that it was the time that he spent alone. I know that seems like a contradiction, but I think the time that he committed in his day to solitude and to prayer and to reflection um, and to silence are the things that made him able then to pay attention to the people around him. So it was being alone that helped him be so great when he was around other people. And I, I, I think, you know, a lot of people talk about him really in reverence, and I do too, you know, um, but, and they act as if, you know, there's never been a man like them, there never will. And that's probably true as well. But I don't, I think they think that what he exuded was just natural to him. And and it really wasn't. It's not natural to anybody. And everything that he did was cultivated. His his ability to laser focus on one person at a time, that was cultivated. You know, the fact that he 
had such a great attention span. You know, he didn't watch television. He didn't let himself be distracted by the things that we're all distracted by. And I think because of that, he was really in the moment when he was with another human being. And and he was with, and I think how exhausting that would be to have to be that way with everybody. But he was able to do that because he cultivated, he worked at it. Um, And it wasn't just like a habit. He, He sincerely cared about you. You know, he sincerely cared about the person he was with. Um, And so it it was something that I think was born out of his solitude. Interesting. You know, I don't know if this was covered in the book, but who instilled such a deep faith in him? I, you know, you mentioned the Benedictines earlier, but there was a, there's an abbey in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and he credits the monks at the abbey with a lot of his understanding of God. Uh-huh. Okay. And so he was raised in a family of faith, but he also had the this influence of, I think it was the very first Benedictine monastery in the United States was in his backyard. And so I know that they had a profound effect on him and his family. Yeah, that's really great. So no doubt he had his own personal demons and dark side to wrestle with. Um, what did, do you know what he battled on a personal level? Um, you know, I mean, I I know that he, you know, I know that he had he dealt with anger like all of us do. Um, he certainly well, I you know, I don't think he ever intended to be a flat character. You know, he he never intended to be one dimensional. And I hope, in all the reverence for him um, that has, in all the tributes that have come out since he passed away, my prayer has always been that we honor him not as you know a shadow of who he was, but who he really was, and all of his complexity. Because he certainly understood that people are complex, and he. He wrote a song that says, um, sometimes people are good and they do just what they should, but the very same people who are good sometimes are the very same people who are bad sometimes. It's funny, but it's true. Isn't it the same for me and you? And the the reason I know those lyrics so well is because I I, – my, when my mother used to come visit me, sometimes she would misbehave, and I would literally walk around the house singing that song. I have the words memorized because I'm just trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes people are good, and sometimes they're, you know, the same people are good, or sometimes, you know, and that whole acknowledgement that we are complex human beings who are capable of both good and bad. And so he also gave me that, and I really literally sang that song when she <laughs> during her visit. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. I mean, <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, I guess it's easy to be, you know, act as if you're holier than now. I mean, not you, but you can, I could certainly think of myself as justified or holier than now when really we all have that those deep sides to us that might not be great. Well, and I know, and I know too that you know he the there were puppets in the neighborhood of make believe for whom he spoke that word that way, you know. Yeah, and I yeah. think those were all aspects of his personality, you know, the pompous King Friday or the mischievous Lady Elaine, and mm-hmm. and his son has even said that you know when he that when he wanted to complain at the dinner table, he would use Lady Elaine's voice. <laughs> So it was like she was like his dark side, I think, and so he yeah. would actually communicate that through through one of his puppets, which is isn't that really amazing? Funny. 
It is funny. It's just, and then, you know, (laughs) I think about my kids, you know, and how they were, you know, just so in that, how would you describe it? Not entranced, but just so delighted in his presence on the TV, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he was so calm, you know, for my son, who was really, you know, a typical toddler, I, it was just magnetic. I mean, he would mm. sit so still and, and yeah. I would, you know, I needed that too. So I would sit and watch with him. And that's really how I first met Mr. Rogers. I didn't grow up with him except mm. for the parodies. And I really discovered him through the eyes of my son and then my daughter and just the impact and just the 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 impact he had on them and also the gifts he gave him. Like my son, for example, was able to express his first feelings of sadness after watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh-huh. He, had, he had never used the word before. And he came to me after the program a couple hours later and said, you know, I'm very sad about something. And I told Fred that when, when I first met him, and he, he was really amazed at how quickly Jonathan was able to assimilate that and, and said, um, you know, it will serve him well all his life, and it and it certainly has. Amazing. I mean, I, I guess that ties into the idea of emotional intelligence and how we mm-hmm. need to develop that. It's, yeah. So another thing that really stuck out in the book to me is um, it was striking to learn just how dedicated Fred Rogers was to making his thoughts, words, and deeds aligned with the promptings of the Holy Spirit, but mm-hmm. he did not proselytize. How would you describe his understanding of God's nature? Well, I, I would say, I, I mean, he didn't proselytize, but only because, not he didn't on television, because, of course, he was on public television, and that wasn't the venue for that. But he was very vocal about his faith, um, in his real life and, you know, through his relationships with people and in letters that he wrote and sermons and things like that. But even though he wasn't allowed to talk about God on public television, that didn't keep him from infusing his faith into everything he did. And he told me that every day when he walked into the studio door, he would say, Dear God, let some word that is heard be yours. And then he said this, which has really struck me, and it's really for for all of us who, in any industry, whether it's television, whether we write books, whether we do radio, whether we publish magazines, and anything that we do, he said, I'm so convinced the space between the television set and the viewer is holy ground, and what we put on television can, by the Holy Spirit, be translated into what this person needs to hear and see. And without that translation, he said, it's all dross as far as I'm concerned. And so that's that he he depended on the Holy Spirit to translate what he was doing and saying into what the viewer needed to hear and see. So, yeah, so I take it that he, yeah, that's really, I mean, I, I read a book uh, on holiness by a bishop, Ryle, I think, and how you know he's urging us to look at all of life through God's eyes, and mm-hmm. uh, and how challenging that is to actually accomplish. So um, yes, yeah, but uh, he was able to do that. So I take it that he had a a deep understanding of that of God God's love, really. He did, and I, and I'll just say this: it's like you know, if I were to sum up his theology, I would call it a theology of neighbor. And 
his definition of neighbor is anybody you happen to be with at the moment, especially if that person is in need. And so, you know, right away there's no loopholes. You know, everyone's your neighbor. And then he says once you have the understanding that everyone is your neighbor, you have two choices. You have a choice whether to be an accuser or an advocate. And and I'm going to quote him. He said, um, evil would like nothing better than to, for us to feel awful about who we are. And we would have that in our minds, and we would look at those eyes and only see what's awful about our neighbor. In fact, look for what's awful about our neighbor. But he said, Jesus is our advocate, and he wants us to feel as good a, about God's creation within us so that we would look through those eyes and only see what's good about our neighbor. So when you talk about, you know, seeing through things through God God's eyes, that was Fred's theology. That was the crux of his faith. It's like we have a choice every day. Are we going to be an accuser like evil or are we going to be an advocate like Christ? Mm. And if we're going to be an advocate like Christ, then we're going to have to look through his eyes at our neighbor and only see what's good about that person. And that was Jeff's conversation with Amy Hollingsworth. What a privilege you had. To, yeah, to talk I'm so with glad her. that you came across that book. Um, and uh, in reading it, you get to know more about Fred Rogers. And with this movie coming out, I just think people can uh, dive deeper into his background and uh, really come away with practical insights for their own life. Just the, the, I mean, the the substance in this book, it, it can get pretty. It, it seems like it can get pretty heady, but the way that she wrote in personal narrative, it it just flows in a very warm and real um, expression. It does, it does. An example of that is uh, Fred uh, Rogers saying. Um, one of his favorite phrases was, what is mentionable is manageable. Uh, he he really um, connected with uh, his own childhood throughout his life and wanted to acknowledge. And that's how Amy got to know him. Uh, Fred Rogers helped Amy acknowledge her own children's feelings um, and to uh, allow them to express it. And then... Um, help them find healthy ways to deal with those feelings. So he talks a lot about uh, the need for sublimation uh, of, of uh, dealing with anger in a, in a healthy way and helping people to do so. And uh, so and when you read her book, the disciplines that Fred Rogers practiced are very practical and are, you know, something that others can emulate. He, Appreciated the value of silence, of being, uh, of entering silence and being conscious of uh, a, a rich prayer life and doing so. Uh, he he stressed the importance of forgiveness and being openness to other, being open to others and being open himself. And he really would take time. For the individual, he was very much in the moment, uh, accepting of who he's dealing with, and uh, letting them know that he valued them uh, as uh, as children of God. Even though he did not overtly, you know, say that he he lived it 
And I think that's what really impressed people and Amy, especially that he uh, he he lived the gospel. He didn't just say it. Again, the, the the name of the book is The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. Well, to that end, we're going to end this uh, episode of Fight for Good. Be sure to subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow The War Cry or Peer Magazine on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Well, it's it's great. And thanks thanks again, Jeff. And, and until next time, this has been the Fight for Good podcast. Subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts.